to the table You see the same old thing Ain't no food upon a table There's no fog up in the pan But you better not complain, boy You get in trouble with the man Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and today I am here to discuss, as promised, In the Tall Grass, both the short story collaboration between Stephen King and Joe Hill and the Vincenzo Natale film that released on Netflix earlier this fall. So, for anyone listening, uh, this is the uh, second part of a two-part review of Joe Hill's Full Throttle collection, which again was released earlier this fall. I reviewed all of the other stories in Joe Hill's collection on the previous episode, and because of the length of that particular episode, how long it was getting, and because I did know that there was the uh, In the Tall Grass movie on Netflix, I decided, I called an audible, I decided that I would release a standalone episode in which I was able to examine In the Tall Grass both the written version and the adapted version. So that's what this episode is going to be today. Um, But first what I want to do, I want to share some listener emails. First up we have longtime listener Marianne who writes, hello. So good to hear you again recently. I am still reading The Institute, so I haven't listened to that episode yet. Full Throttle was really such a good book with some unusual stories that had me reading beyond where I had time to read. I've been singing its praises and I keep trying to lend it to folks, but I have no takers thus far. Their loss. My faves were By the Silver Waters of Lake Champlain, Late Returns, and All I Care About Is You. All I care about is you. You asked for other views on it. And so I will um, sort of interject right here. That is one of the only stories that I didn't, I was not able to connect to uh, in that particular collection. For me, uh, you know, you can listen to all my thoughts on it from last week's episode, but really just to boil it down, I just thought it was too much. And I did ask for anyone with opposing viewpoints to send your thoughts my way so that I could share your thoughts on the, the air. So all of the different perspectives are, uh, you know, uh, offered out into the universe. I felt that this was so unusual and something that I hadn't read before. I've been reading a few older and more recent sci-fi anthologies recently, and I think that where you found the world-building tedious, I really got into it and found it to be a visual feast and fully-fledged. 
I was in that world. It was also so nice to read a sci-fi featuring a girl as the protagonist. Pause. I thought that the interaction with the robot switching between being truly just a service item and a thoughtful, resourceful, temporary friend and accomplice was fantastic. And so the twist after such a lovely event, a departure from quite a low period of her life, really threw me in a great and fantastic way. It also showed a very scary future societal ethic and or the truly low morals or and desperate resourcefulness of this particular lass. The visuals of it have stayed with me and also that place. I'd love to view it, but wouldn't want to live there. Episode two, we went to see it in a double bill with episode one, and I think that mitigated several of the issues with episode two. I felt that it did an okay job, but didn't have the magic and goodwill of the first episode. Although maybe another watching would be good. Episode one stood up so well on rewatch. The elements that stick in my head the most several months uh, on is the scenes that where the characters were divided up and each had their own set of challenges felt a bit weak. And in um, Bethany's case, stereotypical hello menstrual blood, Bev, Beverly's case, uh, hello menstrual blood, yawn. I didn't enjoy Richie constantly trying to run away and I felt that there was a bit of random looping structure in the middle of the film where they just kept on ending up back in the hotel house which meant that it didn't progress as it could have. It seemed like a bit of a waste of time and also seemed to flatten the action several times. However, I thought that most of the characters were well cast and drawn and I liked the interaction with the little kid. I would like to have seen more with Mike and his trials over the years living with the knowledge and insidious sleeping presence of It. I feel it was a disservice to his character to sanitize that or cut it out of the final film. I agree. And then Dr. Sleep. Woohoo, so good. It really tied everything up so well. I am both an original book and Kubrick fan, and I went to a fantastic Kubrick exhibition this summer in London. So fascinating. My favorite part where Stephen King, ooh, Stephen King tells Matthew Modine to just do something brilliant as part of, oh, I'm sorry, not Stephen King. She, she wrote SK, that's my bad. Stanley Kubrick, where SK, ooh, another uh, SK, tells Matthew Modine to just do something brilliant as part of his direction in Full Metal Jacket. No pressure like it. I digress. Anyway, I didn't love Dr. Sleep on first read. I felt that the true knot were a bit trite and felt that they were intruding on my Shining experience. I think that somehow I felt that the Shining, although having an ethereal element through the Shine and ghosts didn't stray too far from our world, but the appearance of Shine-sucking vampires took me right out of this world and into a different fantasy plane. However, I feel the film did a good job at mitigating their existence into the story. I was mollified by the fantastic casting and acting, and I was generally happy with the other uh, alterations to bring the film to screen. Plus, I just loved the tie-ins that allowed for Stephen King's original telling of The Shining to be played out in the film in a visual homage to Kubrick. So well-crafted, good job. By the way, I think I forgot to say when we went on the Stephen King tour in Bangor, Pet Cemetery was on the cinema, so we went along. They had made a spooky cemetery in the lot outside the cinema. It was a lot of fun, even if I still prefer the original movie, and so cool to see it in Bangor. Yay, fangirl nerd time. Cheers, Marianne. Uh, one thing that I feel like I need to point out is that Marianne, if I remember correctly, lives in Scotland. So for her to uh, you know, mention going to Bangor on the SK Tours, which everyone should do, go give Stu some business. He will take you through a tour of the, the world of Stephen King in Bangor. Um, that's really a great pilgrimage for, for her, and it really just shows the enthusiasm and the dedica dedication that she has towards all things Stephen King. So Marianne, it was great to hear from you again. I hope all is well across the sea. So 
With that said, that's the only email that I have this week. But if you have any thoughts that you want to share with me, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and I will share them on the air. Also, if you have a few moments on your hand, please uh, leave a review at um, on iTunes because that, that, that really, really helps me out. There's been a couple new reviews um, that I've been really, really appreciative of. So don't hesitate to write in. It, it goes a long way in helping me out. Okay, so before I get into In the Tall Grass, there is some Stephen King news that I feel like I should discuss. So there's not a lot of detail on this. It was just announced, but it looks like Carrie is going to be coming to FX. I don't know in what form. No one's quite sure if it's going to be a a limited series, if it's going to be like an anthology show. I don't know, but... um, you know, it's been a while since I have seen the remake. I only saw it once for the purposes of the podcast, so I, I don't even remember what my thoughts were. But I do know that even though Carrie, the the Palma version, the Sissy Spacek version, is iconic, bullying is always going to be present, and it's always going to take on new forms. Um, and... Yeah, I, I don't advocate dating something. Um, you know, I'm not saying that should be all cyberbullying, but there is an insidiousness and a and an um, a, a never-ending no escape from bullying nowadays that didn't exist in previous generations who were able to at least go home and close the door and have some reprieve from any school-based bullying issues. Now, bullying exists 24-7, and there really is no delineation between inside of school and outside of school because of social media that has really broken down those barriers and perimeters. And like I said, it has just become so much more toxic and insidious, and uh, I think that there is something to be explored there. And it, it was briefly touched upon in the uh, um, remake, but 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 not anything in, in great depth. I don't think it's necessarily the answer, but I do think that there is something that we can explore uh, within modern day bullying. And so I'm wait. What I'm trying to say is I'm open to this. And then we have Jerusalem's Lot from Variety. Okay, what I'm about to read is an excerpt from Variety. Jerusalem's Lot follows Captain Charles Boone, played by um, Adrian Brody, uh, who relocates his family of three children to his ancestral home in the small, seemingly sleepy town of Preacher's Corners, Maine, after his wife dies at sea. However, Charles will soon have to confront the secrets of his family's sordid history and fight to end the darkness that has plagued the boons for generations. So this is not to be confused with Salem's Lot. Um, There is a a remake of Salem's Lot that is supposed to be occurring as well. And for those of you who are more familiar with Salem's Lot, the story of vampires descending upon a small uh, main town in the 70s, that is different from... Another story that Stephen King wrote, which is called Jerusalem's Lot, which was found in the pages of uh, Night Shift, and Jerusalem's Lot is an H.P. Lovecraftian um, styled, um, what is the term, epistolary? Is that it? I don't think that's right, but it's, it's, a, it's a series of 
It's a story that is conveyed through journal entries by a character who has returned to this particular town after a family member has died um, and he discovers undead um, creatures in the walls and underneath the, the, the grounds and spoiler alert there is a, a giant worm god that the uh, neighboring town worships and it's very disturbing, very haunting. Um, like I said, very, very Lovecraftian. So it looks like this is going to be some sort of adaptation, probably loosely. It's probably going to be a loose adaptation of that story. And there's going to be, you know, it, it's it's funny because this is, uh, you know, we, we just saw some of these beats within uh, the second season of Castle Rock as well. So there's a lot to be mined from the world of Jerusalem's lot. Um, there haven't been a lot of stories in there, but obviously the, 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 the myth has grown large. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to seeing... I think that, you know, Adrian Brody has that look of, you know, that particular time period. And I think that, uh, you know, if, if done right, this could be very, very effective because it allows for a lot of you know, reinterpretation of a lesser-known work of Stephen King. So there's a lot of uh, good meat within that particular story, but I'm not beholden to it to the point where I need it to be a beat-for-beat a, a beat recreation. There's definitely a lot that you can do with it. And the thing that I'm excited most about is that Dr. Sleep is going to be released on uh, uh, streaming and on uh, Blu-ray very, very shortly. The It'll be available on demand in January, and then it's going to be available uh, uh, physically in uh, the first week of February. So not that much longer. We don't have to wait that much longer. And on top of that, I mean, I, I so I, I, I should just say that I can tell I, I know that I love a movie when during the movie I think to myself, I can't wait to buy the Blu-ray. Right? I just there are some there are some things that I want in my collection that I just want to be able to watch on my um, TV with the surround sound going and that's what I wanted. On top of that, what I'm so excited about is that we're not getting the theatrical well, we are getting the theatrical, but we're also getting something else. We're not just getting the theatrical release here. That would be good enough, but we're getting more than that. We're getting the three-hour director's cut by Mike Flanagan, which is a different cut. So this is what Flanagan says, and he told this to Collider, that the new cut would be more literary than what was released in the theaters and very much feels like reading a novel. I'm really excited that WB let me create this cut, much, let, much less release it, Flanagan writes. They really supported it, to the point they made sure that all of the new material with the VFX was fully finished. Additional score was composed and orchestrated just for this cut, and we did a full mix as well. They really let us do this right. It's a finished, complete, fully polished new cut of the movie. Teasing new material throughout the whole film, Flanagan reveals that some of it's brand new stuff that was never included in the theatrical cut. There's also a handful of extended or altered scenes as well. Uh, there was never any intention to release this cut theatrically. We always knew it was too long, he continues. But we worked on it alongside the theatrical cut throughout the post, and it made it a lot easier to make hard decisions in the edit, knowing that someday this cut might see the light of day. 
As for what those scenes include, Flanagan said that there are some big new scenes for sure. I don't want to spoil um, any of that, but I can say that there's new material throughout, including in the final act of The Overlook, he writes. Some of my favorite stuff involved young Danny and Wendy. There's some terrific material with Alex Esso that I am thrilled is restored here and will be familiar to the fans of the book. Uh, there's also a fair amount of new stuff involving young Abra in the film's first act, learning about her shine and how it affects her parents. There are some surprises I definitely won't spoil here. So I am so um, excited for this. Like I said, I can't wait. I wouldn't be surprised if I wind up like just buying it um, streaming and then buy it again on Blu-ray. I really like this movie and it's been sitting with me and I've been re-watching um, The Haunting of Hill House and it's just hitting me so hard. I, I really, really love the things that Mike Flanagan does because he does the things that he does so well. And like I've said before, I'm going to stump for this whenever I get a chance. I want Mike Flanagan to adapt Duma Key, and I want Robert Longstreet to be in that movie. I think that he'd be able to hit it out of the ballpark. Okay, that's it. If you guys have any thoughts on Dr. Sleep, if you have any thoughts on anything related to Stephen King or Joe Hill, um, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Now, with all of that said, here we go. I promised you in the tall grass, you're going to get in the tall grass. I'm going to start with a Wikipedia summary of the short story co-authored by Joe Hill and Stephen King, and then you're going to get all of my thoughts on the short story. And then when I'm done with that, I'll read the Wikipedia for the Netflix movie. Then you'll get all of my thoughts on the Netflix movie. Then I will compare and contrast and uh, you know, sort of go into what works and what doesn't work in the movie um, versus the uh, short story. In the Tall Grass, Wikipedia. Cal and Becky DeMuth are inseparable siblings being called Irish twins by their parents, although they are 19 months apart. Becky finds out during her sophomore year of college that she is pregnant, leading the twins' parents to suggest she go live with her aunt and uncle until the baby is born. Since it is spring break, Cal decides to accompany her on a cross-country trip. They stop at numerous tourist locations along the way, including the biggest ball of twine. After driving for about three days, they stop at a field of tall grass after they hear a little boy named Tobin calling for help. The twins stand outside the field, listening to Tobin screaming for help and his mother Natalie yelling at him to stop yelling, saying that he will hear you. Cal thinks he hears Tobin just a few feet inside the field. Cal walks in to rescue the boy, Natalie's cries having mysteriously gone silent. At first, Tobin's voice sounds so close, Cal dives for him only to end up lying in a puddle of gritty water. Tobin's voice now sounds about 20 feet away. Becky, scared of being left alone, calls 911 as she follows Cal into the field, but the signal is cut off when she is just a few feet in. While trudging along looking for Tobin and Becky, Cal stumbles across a golden retriever's dead body, having died of dehydration. An hour and a half of cat and mouse calling, running, and chasing later, none of the three have located each other. Becky continues to call for Cal and Tobin, but has no luck and recites limericks to comfort herself, and she is dehydrated and tired. She spies someone ahead, and a man steps out of the grass in front of her. He introduces himself as Ross, saying that he is the father of Tobin and the husband of Natalie. He begs Becky to follow him, saying that she will be safe with him. Despite not trusting Ross, she follows him anyway. He lures her to a stamped-down circle of grass where Becky finds Natalie's uh, bloody, dismembered body. 
Ross explains that he found the rock and that the dancing men had showed him the secrets of the tall grass. He then attacks her, trying to kill the baby, but Becky stabs him to death with her house key. Cal, now severely dehydrated and exhausted in his attempts to look for Becky, feverishly drinks the gritty water that the long grass grows in. Now half-crazed, he attempts to burn down the field, but the grass is so wet that none of his matches burn for more than a few seconds. He then finally runs into Tobin, who is eating a dead, rotting crow. Tobin explains that the rotting dog was his, and that the tall grass doesn't move dead things. Tobin leads Cal into a clearing in the middle of the grass, where a large rock with strange drawings of dancing men and words written all over it stand in the middle of it. Tobin says that the rock will help Cal and Becky um, like the rock help will help Cal and Becky like the rock helped Tobin and Cal find each other. Cal, despite his fear of the rock and the strange, seemingly moving drawings, gives in and touches it. Meanwhile, Becky gives birth prematurely. Cal and Tobin then appear and wrap the baby in a shirt. Becky then passes out to slurping sounds. When she wakes up, her baby is nowhere in sight. Cal and Tobin drag a half-conscious Becky to the rock and throw her on it. An unspecified amount of time later, an RV full of hippies pull into a parking lot across the street to have a barbecue and smoke marijuana. They hear Tobin's calls for help, and the whole group walks into the grass to help. So when I first read The Tall Grass, I was very affected by this. I was excited that uh, mass audiences were going to get an opportunity to read it in the publication of Full Throttle. Um, I read, I, I um, like the, the, by the silver waters of Lake Champlain, I had um, downloaded it from Amazon. Um, I read it on my Kindle uh, a few years ago. And it, like I said, it, this was a... This is a hard read. It's done very, 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 very well. And then I had heard, um, you know, this past year that it was going to be made into a movie. And I got excited because I think that it should be shared. But um, so I just want to say that despite the disturbing content, I think this is an incredibly well done piece of writing. Um, and it's very brave because of the stuff that they do. Um, you know what? I, I think that that's actually... It raises a good question. Um, is it brave or is it schlocky? Um, is it is it splatterpunk? Um, does that does that mean that it's it's brave because it's this gross content? It's disturbing content, um, and it's designed to be uncomfortable. And I think that Hill and King uh, do a phenomenal job at wringing out these emotions within the reader. Um, through very effective writing techniques. Okay, so uh, we are introduced right away to Becky and Cal, and um, Hill and uh, King do an incredible job at creating their intertwined life experience. And what's interesting about this is that we don't typically see a brother-sister combination as victims or the the road travelers we have seen this trope before not from brother and sister but from the the the, the couple that is making their way across country or to a location um by stephen king we have seen this with probably the most famously is children of the corn um, but we've also seen it and you know they've got a hell of a band it's it's a trope that stephen king likes to to, to trade in and um here Hill and King have decided not to do that, although they could have. This could have been a story about a young couple uh, who's, uh, you know, uh, who is pregnant, and much of it would function the same, but there's just a different flavor because it's, it's brother and sister. And because of the disturbing uh, stuff that occurs later on in the text, 
there is, there's not incest. That's not occurring. But their closeness does invoke a question of intimacy, uh, emotional intimacy. And that's commented on by the... Um, the, the father of the child as well. So, I mean, they, they are so linked that there is a question of, uh, w like, what's appropriate and if their relationship is healthy. Um, so that kind of just starts to feed this uh, disturbing content that we get within this particular story. So King and Hill start to generate the unease that will later grow nearly unbearable within lines like, the grass was incredibly tall. For such an expensive grass to be more than six feet high this early in the season was an anomaly that wouldn't occur to them later. And he left her on the margin of the highway and turned into the dirt road lot of the Redeemer. The, he's, the scattering of dust-filmed cars was parked here, windshields windshields beetle bright in the glare of the sun that all but one of these cars appeared to have been there for days even weeks was another anomaly that would not strike them then but it would later it's a strange beginning and when becky thinks that something is wrong she's right to do so the setting itself is so wonderfully mysterious the tall grass a boarded up church with the name of the black rock of the redeemer the old bowling alley, the dusty cars. Once you add the lost voices emanating out of the tall grass, you are placed firmly into Cal and Becky's shoes. You should be asking yourself, what would you do? After all, it's not a scary noise coming from a darkened basement um, or like a creepy cavern. It's just grass. It's not a haunted house. It's just grass. Um, and it's just a kid lost within the grass. That, that's the beauty of this premise that the danger and the hellish existence that will soon overcome these characters, it's hidden by the relatively deceptive feeling of safety that the two characters and the reader should feel. Even though she has a bad feeling, she still follows her brother. And the second she enters the grass, her call to the police cuts short. Disorientation is the word that comes to mind from reading this novella, because the entire time you're just questioning your own sense of reality. On page 396, we have, help me, help me. The kid was close, but maybe not quite as close as Cal had thought, and a little farther to the left. Go back to the road, the woman screamed. Now she sounded closer to, go back while you still can. Mom, mommy, they want to help. Then the kid just screamed. It rose to an ear-stabbing shriek, wavered, suddenly turned into more hysterical laughter. There were thrashing sounds, maybe panic, maybe the sounds of a struggle. Cal bolted in that direction, sure he was going to burst into some beaten-down clearing and discover the kid, Tobin, and his mother being assaulted by a knife-wielding maniac out of a Quentin Tarantino movie. He got ten yards and was just realizing that he had to be too far when the grass snarled around his left ankle. He grabbed at more grass on his way down and did nothing but tear out a double handful that drooled sticky green juice down his palms to his wrist. He fell full length on the oozy ground and managed to snork mud up both nostrils. Marvelous. How come there was never a tree around when you needed one? And uh, they, they continued. It doesn't take long for the two of them to realize that something is terribly wrong. <laughs> like they're the main characters in a story by Joe Hill and Stephen King. The way that they can't find each other in the grass, the fact that the geography and normalcy doesn't apply to them anymore, the constant description of the wet, muddy earth and the increasing thirst, it's all so effectively rendered on the page. 
Directions melted in the tall grass, they write, and time melted as well. A dolly world with Dolby sound. And then um, on page 400, we get more descriptions. Her eyeline only cleared the top of the grass for a moment, affording her the briefest glimpse back to the way that she'd come. She saw What she saw, though, was enough to make her almost breathless with alarm. Cal and the road. Cal and the road. She came back down, felt a shock of impact jolt up through her heels and into her knees. The squadgy ground under her left foot melted away. She dropped and sat down in the rich black muck with another jolt of impact, a, a literal whack in the ass. Becky thought that she had walked 20 steps into the grass, maybe 30 at most. The road should have been close enough to hit with a frisbee, but it was instead as if she had walked the length of a football field and then some. Battered red Datsun, zipping along the highway, looked no bigger than a matchbox car. 140 yards of grass, a softly flowing ocean of watered green silk stood between her and that slender blacktop thread. It goes on. I mean, I just could just read this. I could just keep on reading um, as the disorientation and the fear starts to, to take over. Aside from the central premise of the story, um, the father-slash-son combination uh, weave in dangling mysteries to tease the reader. What had Cal seen um, in the, the car parked in the church parking lot? Who else was in the grass with them? The descriptions continue, the heat of the sun, the increasing thirst, the beads of dew in the grass, and how hot the swampy water is. The discovery of the dead dog, the swarm of flies, coupled with Cal's increasing descent into panic. It's strange, it's off-putting, it's unpleasant, it's disturbing, it's nightmarish. Hill and King keep throwing strangeness and danger at us, like when Tobin's dad, Ross, emerges to find Becky. He's clearly off. Something's wrong, and the vulnerability of Becky is magnified with the ticking time bomb of her pregnancy. The question of Ross leads to the discovery of his murdered, mutilated wife, the reveal of the rock, and a more physical danger than the surreal exist the existential threat of the grass itself. And in case you question whether or not they were going to follow through with the inherent threat against the unborn child, they do it in an incredibly difficult scene to read in which Ross unmercifully assaults Becky's stomach. It's not something you often see depicted, and it's deeply unpleasant. Reading this story hurts, her eye, hurts your eyes, honestly. It sizzles your brain, and it makes you feel unclean. While Becky vanquishes the murderous madman, a desperate cow begins to... Um, drink the soupy mud water and soon discovers Tobin, the child who lured them into the grass in the first place, who greets both the brother and the reader by taking a mouthful of crow. He leads Cal to the rock while Becky gives birth under a bloated, sickly moon. All of this concludes with Cal becoming corrupted um, and then a, 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 a dinner um, of the most disturbing sort. Um, it's awful. It's awful, and I have been on record for years at this point discussing how Stephen King is a hopeful writer. He sees the best in humanity, and despite the horrors that are inflicted upon some of his characters, it's always at the service of the belief that um, whatever the evils and the horrors are, most of the time they can be overcome, that there is not a, a level of despair or bleakness or all hope is lost. Um, quality to his stories, with the exception of a few. 
this is one of those exceptions. This is a deeply dark and disturbing story that has no hope. Um, it is unrelenting in its assault on its characters' um, physicality, on the characters' souls, on the readers' patience. It's um, very, very harsh. I mean, this might be the most unpleasant thing that either of them had written. While both writers can dip into bleakness, they both, like I said, hew towards compassion and focus on the strength of humanity. However, every now and then, uh, they reveal themselves capable of living up to their monikers of being the king and the prince of horror. This is legitimately horrific content. It's deeply disturbing, incredibly off-putting. Put, off it transcends taste. I do not like this story. It is far too mean to actually like, but it's incredibly rendered. The shifting perspectives of the two characters, the rapid descent into madness, um, the dawning horror of what's occurred, it's all too well written to be dismissed as just a garish short story. It's the work of masters at their game, and what a ghoulish game it is. Like I said, it's reminiscent of Children of the Corn. You know, they have got a hell of a band, a little bit of desperation, um, and other stories of, of King by uh, of wayward travelers who wander to the wrong spot. And the surreality of it uh, conjures both N and fourteen oh eight. So I don't know if I can recommend this story, but it is very very effective. Okay, so that is the short story. Um, now I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary uh, for the Vincenzo Natale um, Netflix movie by the same name. Wikipedia. Siblings Becky and Cal DeMuth travel to San Diego so that six months pregnant Becky can give up her baby for adoption. While stopping outside an old church, the pair hears a young boy named Tobin call for help from a nearby field of grass. They later hear his mother Natalie begging him to not call for anyone. Concerned, the pair enters but quickly gets separated and finds that their distance from one another changes strangely. Increasingly panicked, the pair decides to leave but are unable to locate the road. Night falls and Cal stumbles across a bruised and dirty Tobin holding a dead crow who claims that the grass won't move dead things and buries the bird in the path. Becky encounters Tobin's father, Ross, but they get separated in the grass. Tobin leads Cal to an ancient rock in the field and encourages him to touch it, but they are interrupted by Becky's scream as she's attacked by an unseen figure. Meanwhile, the father of Becky's child, Travis, arrives looking for her and Cal. He finds their car parked outside the church and decides to investigate the field of grass, eventually stumbling across Tobin, who leads him to Becky's rotting corpse. As Travis grieves, he loses sight of Tobin. At the same time, a seemingly earlier version of Tobin arrives at the church with Natalie and Ross. Hearing Travis, who is now calling out to Tobin, their dog Freddy runs into the grass and the family runs after him where Travis hears Tobin and looks for him. The family panics and scatters, with Ross stumbling across the rock and touching it as night falls. Morning comes and shows Becky and Cal re-entering the grass as they investigate Tobin's cries. Tobin states that Freddy was killed. Knowing that the grass does not move dead things, Travis instructs Becky and Cal to move towards Tobin and all four find each other. Travis tells Becky and Cal that they had been missing for two months. The group spots a building in the distance and walks to it. On the way, Becky receives a phone call from someone sounding very distressed. 
As they walk, the grass seems seemingly enters Becky's uterus and she passes out, only to be revived by Ross, who then reunites with Tobin as the sun goes down. Ross leads them to a rock where they are confronted by a startled Natalie, who claims that she saw Becky's corpse earlier. She then warns them to not touch the rock. Ross gets more and more agitated until the others decide to leave. He wounds Travis and kills Natalie before pushing the others, claiming the rock showed him the truth and the way out, but he doesn't want to leave. Becky, Cal, Travis, and Tobin reach the abandoned building, and while scouting, Travis and Cal discover that Freddy has managed to escape the field via a hole that leads to the road. A jealous Cal, who is implied to have incestuous feelings for Becky, lets go of Travis as he slips, causing him to fall off the roof. Tobin witnesses this and flees into the field when Ross follows them to the roof. Becky refuses to leave Travis and goes back, and as Cal flees, Cal is strangled to death by Ross, and it's revealed they are in a time loop, permanently being hunted by an insane Ross in the grass. Travis has survived the fall and goes searching for Becky. They can hear each other on opposite sides of the field, and Becky admits she was going to give up the baby for adoption. Becky is attacked by Ross, but escapes after stabbing him in the eye as a thunderstorm begins. Hunted by grass creatures who carry her to the rock, which has prophetic markings related to Becky's pregnancy. After seeing a horrific vision underneath the rock, Becky frantically makes a phone call, pleading for her past self to prevent Cal from hurting Travis. Becky then passes out. She awakens to find Cal caring for her and feeding her with what is revealed to be her baby. Becky slowly realizes that she was hallucinating Cal, who is revealed to be Ross. Moments later, Travis stumbles across Becky's unconscious body. Tobin finds him and they are confronted by Ross, who mortally wounds Travis. As, tra as Ross tries to make Tobin touch the rock, Becky attacks Ross and scratches out his other eye with her necklace before dying from her wounds. Travis kills Ross and then realizes that the only way to understand the grass is to touch the rock. Travis touches the rock and sees a series of strange visions. He then grabs Tobin's hand and guides him through the grass to an exit, instructing him to stop Becky and Cal from entering the grass. Tobin emerges in the church across the road just as Becky and Cal are about to enter the grass and convinces them to stay out by showing them Becky's necklace that Travis gave him, hence closing the loop. Becky decides to keep her baby as they drive back home. Travis listens to them and dies peacefully in the grass. Okay, um, so as you can see right away, there are a lot of differences between uh, the movie and the short story. And you know what? I'm glad that I made this decision because I don't think that I gave the movie a fair chance when I first watched it. I'm going to be honest. Um, I was excited to watch it. Um, but I had a headache that night as I as I watched on the couch, so I just kind of was just annoyed, period, from the headache. It wasn't a migraine or anything, but it was just one of those headaches that just kind of burrow in, like, right behind your eyes, and you can't get rid of it, probably because I don't drink enough water. Um, and the next day, I was going to go to New York Comic Con, so I just was kind of excited about that, and I just knew that I needed sleep, and I was kind of worried that I would have this low-level headache all the next day. So it was a lot that was impacting me from really just being able to fully let uh, In the Tall Grass, the movie, wash over me. So I allowed myself to be able to go back to it and watch it, and here are my thoughts. So I have a running commentary uh, through the, uh, the rewatch of In the Tall Grass. So I will say that um, it's an effective opening. Uh, there is an overhead shot of the tall grass. 
Uh, it's disorienting, really, um, as it starts to pan in with the spooky music playing. It For a, a movie that's called In the Tall Grass, it's an effective way to start off uh, the movie by establishing the tall grass. We then meet Becky and Cal. Sam Cooke is playing. Uh, it quickly establishes that she's pregnant. And in case you wonder if Vincenzo Natale is going to play up or downplay the closeness of these two characters, he definitely uh, plays it up. He leans into it. So for viewers unfamiliar with the story, they will immediately assume that these two characters that we are first being introduced to are a couple. I mean, why wouldn't you make that assumption? This is what we are conditioned to assume. They quickly banter, and it leads to an exchange in which Becky, Becky asks, what do you know about women's bodies? To which Cal replies, not enough, while giving her a very thirsty look. He might even lick his lips at that moment. I don't quite remember, but um, even if he doesn't, the insinuation is present that um, Cal, the brother um, in this duo, probably uh, shipped uh, Jamie and Cersei. Immediate whiplash. The viewer first thinks that they are a couple, and then they probably wonder where they're going, and then the man mentions mom and dad, so all of a sudden it throws everything you just believed for a loop. And if you feel icky, well, you should. I don't think it's a coincidence that uh, Natalie's first action taken for these characters is to have one of them throw up. He's signifying that, yeah, you should feel icky here. And then... While pulled over, we hear the cries of Tobin coming from the grass. At this point, we're getting a sense of the setting. The church of the Black Rock of the Redeemer, the cars in the parking lot, the fact that the church's stained glass windows are the swirling green of grass. And that's a nice little touch that's never quite uh, harped on or, or made very... Uh, obvious. It's just something that I, I definitely didn't notice the, the the first time around, so I was glad to, to pick it up the second time. It's just a nice little touch that I liked. Cal rushes into the grass, and Becky hesitantly follows. At this point, the story is following the text very closely, right down to Becky's phone call to the police dropping out, the disorientation of the grass, the mucky earth, and how quickly they get lost from one another. Natalie also includes a little character quirk of Becky's predilection for limericks. They jump to find each other only to find that each time they jump they are farther away. Cal panics, rushes through the grass, and lands face down in the muck where he discovers the dead dog. At this point, this is where the story starts to become its own thing. Becky meets Ross, and this is a big deviation from the text. The sun quickly sets, the moon rises, and Cal stumbles through the grass calling Becky's name. He's visited by Tobin, who is carrying a dead crow, much like the, uh, the book. There's a dreamy strangeness to how this scene plays out, from Tobin's cadence, his calmness, the delivery of how he lets Cal know that Becky will die soon. Uh, I'm going to get to the look of the nighttime scenes later on, but as I think about the introduction of Tobin it's lifted from the pages of the book where it makes sense as the Tobin that we meet in the book or the short story uh has been corrupted by the Black Rock um and that doesn't fully align with the Tobin that we know from 
the movie with events that are going to occur later on uh, within the film. We Tobin isn't corrupted. Tobin is a victim, and Tobin is disoriented from being lost in this grass, watching his father become murderous. Um, the interactions with Travis, the whole nine yards. There, there's there's time loops that are occurring that I'll that I'll talk about some more. But um, to me, the the introduction to Tobin serves to create a creepiness within the world of the grass, but doesn't necessarily align with what Natalie does with the character. It doesn't seem to be fully consistent with me, as he seems um, ominously sinister. In 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 a way, uh, you know, holding the, the the dead crow, luring Cal to the rock, uh, events that occurred, but um, in the book, but it just doesn't seem to align with the future depiction of the character within the same film. As his son weirds Cal out, Ross shows he's a pretty good guy to Becky. Um, naturally, anyone that you find in the strange setting should cause you to question their inherent goodness, and it's just a matter of time before Ross reveals um, us to the, the, the depths to his depravity. But right now, it's just Patrick Wilson playing a, a good guy, maybe one that you don't fully trust. Probably the mustache. Um, but he's also just seems plucked right from the pages of a King novel. He just feels like a Stephen King character with dialogue like Russ Humboldt's the name, real estate's the game, yada yada yada. We are then introduced to The Rock. It's a great looking scene with the moon having risen behind it and a discordant buzzing filling your speakers. Becky starts screaming for help somewhere in the grass and Cal rushes after her screaming. And this is where the movie really diverts from the short story. We cut to a new character driving along the road looking for Becky and Cal. He's questioning a local to see whether or not um, she had seen um, Becky or Cal. Um, but it's clear that even though he's showing the picture of the both of them, he's really only looking for Becky. He continues driving, discovers the Church of the Black Rock, finds their car, which is now covered in dust with the suggestion that it's been sitting there for quite some time. And then he too heads into the tall grass, though he hasn't been named yet. Both viewers and book readers should take a pretty good guess at who it is. I mean, who would have such an interest in Becky, the pregnant girl, other than the father of her unborn child? Travis, and he'll be named Travis, uh, shows some quick thinking here, bending the grass and knotting it up to function as a marker. It's an inclusion that was not in the text, and I thought that it was a very smart decision. It reveals that he has some intelligence and immediately juxtaposes him with Captain Cal, who rushed into the grass and whose every plan of action consists of him panicking and screaming Becky's name. Weirdness ensues as Travis meets Tobin and Tobin begins to drop tantalizing clues about the biggest differences between this adaptation and the source material with Tobin talking to Travis as if they should know each other. And Tobin then leads him to the rotting corpse of Becky. It might seem like the end of a story, a natural conclusion, but the story is really just beginning here. When it first appears to be the next morning, Travis wakes up and starts calling for Tobin, and the camera does give us Tobin, but it's Tobin prior to having ever entered the grass in the first place. And we see how Tobin, Ross, and Natalie entered the grass, with the mind-bending twist that the voice that Tobin heard was Travis, 
who only entered the grass because he went looking for Becky, who entered the grass after hearing Tobin. Our loop has begun. Ross discovers the rock on the original timeline and is drawn to it. And from there, the strangeness really starts to ensue. With the inclusion of Travis into the grass, he seems to have interrupted the events that played out prior to us meeting him. Travis, Cal, Becky, and Tobin all meet each other um, in the grass. Tobin isn't weird here. Cal and Becky haven't been in the grass long. Becky certainly isn't dead. And Travis reveals that two months have passed since Becky and Cal first set off on their cross-country trip. But for Becky and Cal, it's only been two days. As Travis and Becky have a tender moment together, Cal looks on uh, with either suspicion or jealousy or both. Probably mostly jealousy. Becky receives a disturbing phone call, which more likely than not is from herself. It will later be determined that, yes, she is the one that made that phone call. Um, and it's very uh, sorry right number. Becky then passes out while having a vision in which she sees shapes in the grass and CGI of grass wrapping itself around the baby. Um, I am going to save my thoughts on the CGI for later on. But don't worry, guys, I've got thoughts. She's uh, brought back by Ross, who has entered the group, and he begins leading them through the grass while singing uh, Midnight Special and takes them to the Black Rock. Now, before Cal can touch the rock, Natalie emerges to stop him. Travis's reactions are refreshing. He knows that he's in a horror movie, and he isn't going to take any chances. So when Ross starts to show his insanity, he doesn't hesitate to try and take him out before the threat of Ross can actualize into true danger. But it doesn't matter. Ross is hyped up on dark faith and magic strength. He snaps Travis's arms and pops Natalie's head. Massive departure from the story. The characters manage to get out of the grass by escaping into the bowling ball alley referenced in the text. Um, and while in the bowling alley, the subtext becomes text here as Cal's feelings towards Becky are explicitly discussed in a very blunt argument between Cal and Travis. As Travis tries to break into, uh, I'm sorry, as uh, Ross tries to break into their safe house, Cal lets Travis plummet to what appears to be his death after discovering that there is a possible hole in the grass that will allow them to get back onto the road. But even though salvation is so close and could be, it could not be farther away for Cal, as he is quickly chased after by Ross, who tackles him and pins him down in a very suggestive position, which highlights Cal's vulnerability. And Cal discovers a row of corpses of himself in varying degrees of decay as Ross strangles him to death. Ross then turns his attention to Becky, who manages to stab him in the eye before fleeing through the rain, where she's taken by grass people who carry her above their heads. In a very effective overhead shot, we see the pulsating grass writhing in beat with the chanting music. And then Becky finds herself back at the Black Rock. As she begins to give birth, the earth opens up beneath the rock and we see a root system made up of writhing figures in agony. It's an incredibly strange and disturbing image. It raises the question, who are they? The dead legions that have died in the grass, the, the, the dead multiple versions of the selves that have been stuck in time loops in the grass, um, the, the, the people that have been sacrificed to the Black Rock. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure. I don't need answers. We're better off not having answers. It's better to just keep that image mysterious and dangerous and dark and horrifying. I don't want answers, but I just wanted to raise that question. 
She comes to, and the camera is purposely fuzzy. She's disoriented. Cal is there and giving her water from the soil. We see the baby out of focus. It's clear that something's wrong. She comes to again. Cal is feeding her. We see blood. We hear the disgusting sounds of chewing meat. It's gross. And as Becky begins to realize what's happening, Cal takes focus, and we realize that's not Cal, but Ross. Ross then attacks Travis, and before he can sacrifice his son to the rock, Becky wounds him in his good eye. Travis manages to choke Ross to death with the grass. Travis then, for no reason, touches the rock. I mean, I, th- there's no guarantee that he's not going to become a possessed madman the way that Ross was, but, I mean, let's just go with that. Um, it shows him the way out, and then he leads Tobin through the grass. He transports Tobin to the church prior to the moment when Cal and Becky entered the grass in the first place. Tobin shows Becky a copy of her necklace from her time in the grass and says that Travis gave it to him. The weirdness of the scene is enough to get through to Becky. They get in the car... And the cries of a child from the grass screaming, don't leave, gives Becky the push that she needs to keep her baby. And it's, it's very, very strange, weird, creepy that you still hear Tobin calling from the grass as Tobin is stopping Becky from entering. And the fact that we still hear Tobin leads one to believe that there still is a Tobin that has escaped and a Tobin, um, sorry, that has not escaped. And this Tobin that hasn't escaped is going to suffer the the fate of having to exist within the grass and whatever that fate may be. It just might be different from the the salvation that the Tobin that we got to know um, gets. Um, it it just and then with because the, the the multiple versions of Cal that we saw rotting in the grass, um, I don't believe that when Becky and Cal and Tobin drive away that the Tobin in the grass is going to be saved. I think that Tobin is still screwed, as is any version of the others that are still in the grass at that particular time. Um, because this particular uh, interpretation and depiction of time travel appears to be operating with a multiple timeline theory um, of, of deviations and branches off of an established timeline um, rather than changing the past. It's kind of like what you got out of uh, Avengers Endgame where you get branches off of a, a tree. Um and just an infinite number of possibilities that create its own timeline. That that seems to be the hint of what we get here. Um, so I, a Becky was saved. I don't know if it's still the Becky, um, or maybe it is. Um, I don't know. You know, we're, we're I'm applying right now. I'm trying to apply sci-fi rules to a horror story. Um, I'm not saying that time travel and horror don't mix well. They definitely can. Um, and this does create creepiness and strangeness and a, um, a helplessness, um, within the story that is a complement to the, the text. Um, but I think that if you spend too much time trying to wrap your head around the laws and the rules of the time travel as depicted within the movie, I, I don't know if it will add up. Maybe it will. I have not spent... Um, that much time trying to p- 
parse out the the cause and effect of um, interaction interactions with past selves in order to um, stop the possible future because we do have some looping i mean we have becky getting the phone call from herself which indicates that the events of the uh future are impacting the events of the past and the events of the past then create the present which in turn creates the future so it's a, a loop of inevitability and but with Cal, finding multiple versions of Cal in the grass, um, that leads one to believe of multiple versions of someone existing simultaneously with different pathways from different timelines leading into the grass. Uh, so th there, there's some cases that can be made for... Um, and I don't know the specific terminology for the uh, different types of time travel. I know that they exist. Um, I just am not up to snuff on my time travel logic uh, terminology. So the, um, the, the, the looping one um, where the, the, the actions of um, that you take create that that loop um that is definitely in place and um the actions that you take create splintered uh realities that also seems to be taking place too so i don't know what what the answer is but um i think the more you think about it the less potency the um the surrealness has because then you're, you're starting to to box it into to some reality when i think that the the whole point is to let it wash over you um so that's that i mean it, i'm sure that the, the, the people smarter than i have um crafted the theory of time travel as depicted within um in the tall grass and i i know of vincenzo natale i am not incredibly well versed in uh, Vincenzo Natale. So I'm going to take a ding on my horror creds here, but I never, I never saw Cube. I know of Cube. I never saw it. Um, but that was, a, a an early nineties, um, you know, horror sci-fi movie that, you know, really hit the, the cult scene and there was a lot of buzz around it. I, I never saw it, but, um, from what I understand, it's very similar in premise to the time travel as depicted here, I believe. Um, I could be pulling that out, um, but I, I believe that that's true. But I did, I did see Slice, Splice, um, and again, you know, he he definitely traffics from what I I know of him. He, he traffics in in horror with a sci-fi bent, so I'm not surprised that we get a sci-fi inclusion into a non-sci-fi horror story, um, as it was depicted in. Uh, the original text. I think he might have actually uh, directed some episodes of Hannibal, if I remember correctly, and I loved Hannibal. So I, there, there is a talent that's on display. I just don't know if always the, the aesthetic is what I am looking for, so I want to fully acknowledge that this is an area in which um, my subjectivity gets in the way of my objectivity. Um, 
so this is where my my failings of a I can't really call myself a critic of anything. This is why I always said that this is the one man's musings on the works of Stephen King, and in this case, Joe Hill, and in this case, Vincenzo Natale, and not a critic. Um, because I sometimes I just fully acknowledge that I can't be fully objective here. Uh, I, I just... There's a look. There, there's a look to this movie, especially the nighttime scenes, that I find off-putting, and not in a... N- not not in a way I mean I, I can deal with off-putting in, in horror in fact some of the most effective horror that I, I like is off-putting hereditary it's incredibly off-putting um, it's not a feel-good movie uh, but I, I think that's an, an incredible Midsommar is off-putting right Ari Aster <laughs> does really good work with off-putting um, I'm fine with off-putting um, but there, there's just a look there's a there's a particular sheen and there's particular decisions that are made that are stylistic to the point where it really takes me out of being in the grass with them. So we, we get some just C- CGI that I, I think is awful. Um, the, 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 the moon and the rock... And the C, this the CG sheen that just kind of coats it. I, on paper, the descriptions look you, you can conjure it, and it's effective on paper. But when when you see the way that it's depicted so literally on screen, with 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 the moon and the rock that looks like a CGI creation. It just looks cheesy. That's the only word that really comes to mind. Then we have the CGI grass. Um, There's there's a matte sort of sky, unmoving sky that just does not look genuine. Um, It just makes it look fake and cheap. Then then, and then we get the the CGI fetuses and the CGI grass wrapping itself around the CGI fetus. And then we get the CGI heart beating. And then we get the CGI grass wrapping itself around the CGI heart beating. And it's what whatever he's going for in that moment to show the invasive quality of the grass, to show the the, the madness taking hold, to show the, the vulnerability of these characters. All of this is conveyed through the choice to use computer imaging for special effects and to me that choice takes me out of it um so i i I really wish that there was not as much of that um but there is and i think that's a lesser movie because of it um also i i kind of mourn for the simplicity of the story as depicted in the, the, the text, the, the decisions that he makes here to incorporate the time travel narrative and component, um, it creates just a new layer to it that I find admirable on one level, but it also makes me miss the simplicity of these characters being stuck in a shifting sea of grass, um, where the, the space, space was affected, time was not affected. Um, here we have looping we have multiple timelines there's a lot there's a lot going on in the grass and I 
Um, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it fully gels or if it fully adds up to, uh, to something that's um, truly works. But that's just me. Call it nitpicking or just call it, you know, faults that I find with the movie. Call it what it is. Um, you know, and then, I mean, then, then there is nitpicking, like, just having Becky and Cal for what seems like an eternity just screaming for each other as they try to make their way through the grass. It's not a great, you know, I mean, I don't know how you translate it. I don't know how you do it, but it, yeah, it it's kind of annoying. Right, so that that's the bad, you know, but it, it's not without its good qualities. So one thing that is clear to me is that Vincenzo Natali read this story and said, okay, this is a very disorienting story. I'm going to recreate that sense of disorientation. And he does that um, in a different way, but he does that. And he understands that that is the key to making the story work. Um, and it is disturbing. You know, he goes for it. He goes for it in terms of the baby. He goes for it in terms of the incestual feelings that, um, or incestuous feelings that Cal has towards Becky. Um, what is suggested suggested in the text is brought out into the light um, in the movie, but it is there. Um, all of it is there. Um, so it is disturbing. Uh, he does not pull punches. Uh, the, the scene with the chewing and the ugh, it's it's disgusting. It's disgusting. It's gross. Um, so he he goes for that there. Um, th there is a a darkly comedic interpretation of the movie that is suggested through the uh, Patrick Wilson character um, about the rock being at the center of this continent. Um, and that it, you know it preceded anything else that had occurred within this land, um, you know possibly that the, the 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 land itself sprung up around um, this particular uh, rock. But the idea that all of these travelers have made their way to this rock um, in the middle of nowhere, kind of you know recontextualizes it as a tourist attraction. Um, which, which just cracks me up. I mean, it's not. It's not. Um, it's clearly not. But, you know, you can sort of make that argument that these are these lone travelers all making their way, you know, taking a, a, a detour to go see rather than the world's largest ball of twine as referenced, you know, there, there's some evidence for this. As, you know, referenced in uh, the, the short story, um, instead of doing that, you know, they, they come see the, the Black Rock of the Redeemer. So I thought that that was, that was pretty, pretty fun. Um, and then, look, guys, I mean, for, for good or for bad about this movie, I mean, one thing that I think that we can all agree on is Patrick Wilson just really elevates it. You know, there is a gleeful madness to him that, you know, that Stephen King villains, they have that glimmer in their eye, you know, they darkle and tinked. And he is. That's exactly what he's doing here. He is just hamming it up. He has his pithy one-liners. Um, he is chewing scenery left and right. Um, he is possessed with this dark faith. Um, he, he just feels like a quintessential Stephen King villain in, in 
and one not necessarily depicted in the movies, but one that feels very true to the books. So it was really interesting and fun to see it. And when Patrick Wilson goes hammy, just get out of the way and let him do it because it is so fun to watch. The A-Team, which nobody talks about, and I don't know why people don't talk about Joe Carnahan's The A-Team because it is a fun movie. Um, Patrick Wilson is this stealth comedic genius in the movie who's just rocking out to Steely Dan the entire time. And he's villainous and he's secretive and he is you know gleefully bad it's great and in insidious 2 he gets to just play his version of jack torrance from the shining and it's great and in here in in the tall grass again he just gets to be this murderous monster and he's good at it and um i just i really enjoyed watching him um in in this role so that's that's that. So all, all in all, I'm glad that I rewatched it because I liked it better than I did the first time around. I gave it a second chance. Um, and I was less critical on how I felt. And I was less, I, I guess, I, I, the word that comes to mind is dismissive. I was, I was much less dismissive the second time around as I was the first time around. So um, sorry, guys. Sorry about that. Um, but I, I still definitely prefer the 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 short story by uh king and hill and i think that some of the decisions that were made in the the movie are not the right decisions to make but uh a lot of the scenes uh are effective the uh setting is perfect uh and as much as i i am not a fan of the, the time travel element portions of it really work in the movie's favor so uh i don't think that's a a full actualization of the uh creator's intent um but even if it fails to fully realize the promise of um what vincenzo natale could have accomplished i still think that is worth watching um, and I'm glad that it exists on Netflix with, where everyone can see it. Um, and hopefully there will be many people that do see it and are interested in, in saying, oh, who's Joe Hill? I know Stephen King is Joe. Oh, Joe Hill is Stephen King's son. What else? You know, um, And maybe this will help them uh, uh, check out Lock and Key when that comes out. And I think that Vincenzo Dentali is... Can we direct in a couple episodes of that as well? So that that's cool. That he's keeping in the family. So all in all, it's worth watching. Um, I'd recommend it just so people kind of you know get their own opinions on it. I think that more people actually will respond to the, the weird time travelness than I did. Um, so you know, I, I think that there's a benefit to having this movie on Netflix that will help. Um, help get the name of, of Joe Hill out there. Uh, okay. So that's all that I got guys. Thank you for sticking around. Um, as I review in the tall grass and I don't know, like as I record this, it's the day after Christmas, Merry Christmas, happy holidays, everybody. Um, I don't know if we will record another episode before the new year. So if I don't, um, I really hope that everyone is able to, 
end 2019 on a high note. Um, and I, I really hope that for everybody listening, whatever goals that you have for yourself for 2020, I hope that they come true. And I hope that this is a year that is happy and healthy for all of us. I hope that we are all able to find some measure of peace and safety and health and happiness and security. And I, I hope that uh, whatever turbulence might rock um, your lives personally or the world, I, I, I hope that the, the, the waters still um, and that we are all able to just sail smoothly um, together uh, into a, a new year full of promise and optimism. That is my hopes for everyone. So I say all this uh, with the thought that I, I won't be able to release an episode by uh, the, the new year. But um, if I do, then, you know, take my wishes, <laughs> still take my wishes, and I'll repeat all of it again. But uh, but no, that's, that's all that I got, guys, uh, for now. And, you know, 2020 is going to be a, a cool year because we got Lock and Key coming. We got... The Outsider, which I'm so excited about, coming our way. Um, and who knows? Maybe maybe Amazon's the Dark Tower, but I am not holding my breath on that. Okay, guys. Um, oh, yeah. And then we got uh, Doctor Sleep. Like I said, we got uh, you know the, the the director's cut of Doctor Sleep. Okay. So, but that's all I got. Um, happy. Happy 2019, guys, and looking forward to 2020, and I will see you here uh, next time. Oh, I'm sorry. May you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time, 2020, where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. Let the midnight show shine out on me. Let the midnight show